Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Was It Worth It?, Doug Peacock, loner, iconoclast, environmentalist, and contemporary of Edward Abbey, reflects on a life lived in the wild, recounting adventures both close to home, grizzlies in Yellowstone and jaguars in the high Sonoran Desert, and farther afield, tigers in Siberia, jaguars again in Belize, spirit bearers in the wilds of British Columbia, all the amazing birds of the Galapagos. And he tries to understand and explain his perspective on nature, that wilderness is the only thing left worth saving. Doug Peacock has published widely on wilderness issues, from grizzlies, bears, to buffalo, from the Sierra Madres to the Sonoran Desert to the fjords of British Columbia, from the tigers of Siberia to the blue sheep of Nepal. He was a Green Bay uh, Beret medic and a real-life model for Edward Abbey's George Washington Hayduke and the Monkey Wrench Gang. And uh, Doug Peacock was granted an Arts and Letters Award in Literature from the Academy of Arts and Letters uh, just this year. Doug Peacock, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you uh, talking to us. Uh, so you're uh, talking from Montana, I think. It's, it's, where about in Montana? Remind me. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a booster shot a couple days ago, and I have lingering side effects. But I'm, on the, I'm in the Yellowstone River Valley, north of Yellowstone Park, about 30 miles. So you know, I have uh, lots of animals here, 400 elk in wintertime, and you can always tell when there's a wolf around because the elk will show you. And uh, occasionally a grizzly bear wanders this far north looking for new pastures in this time of uh, climate change. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Um so uh, I want to talk, uh, maybe begin with the title of the book, Was It Worth It? This uh, comes from uh, some travels in the lower Sonoran Desert. You say, you know, we know you from, uh, you know, the northern Rockies and the grizzly bears, but uh, you say you also fell in love with the lower Sonoran Desert. Um, and uh, so, so tell us uh, what you found out there, that where you got this phrase, Was It Worth It? Uh, yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I uh, spend... I have spent a great hunk of my life out in that wilderness desert that's uh, part of uh, the border country of southwestern Arizona there. It's variously called the Cabeza Prieta Wildlife Range, but it's also bombing ranges and, and the Pinacate Desert in Mexico. And, you know, I don't pay any attention to all the geographical and political subdivisions. It's just great lonely country and before you know we had immigration problems and that bloody impossible wall uh you never saw anybody out there you know you could walk and i i've done this uh, eight times from end to end but it depends which route you take i never took the same route but i backpacked it carrying my own water and you've got to know where the water is out there uh you know, in the mountains in natural tanks, or you die. And it would take me 10 days to walk about 160 miles, um, you know, sometimes a little less, depending on the route I take. And, you know, I I ran into Ed Abbey and Clark Abbey once. They were in their, their vehicle driving across it, and I was walking. But they're the only people I ever saw, you know, 20 years. Of this, this, I mean, it's what a great privilege and indulgence it was because, uh, you know, um, I had to do it before my kids were old enough to, 
to know what Christmas was, and then I had to go cold turkey. But it's it's great, wild, rugged country. I never used any trails, and in fact, there's no trails out there. They're just steep trails and stuff. And uh, in the wildest, most rugged part of that immense desert, um, I'd run across the name John Moore scratched on rocks, and it, it, the the name John Moore would come with a uh, with a date, generally from uh, it was 1906 to 1912, and uh, and and twice this this. Uh, wonderful perplexing idiomatic phrase followed it john moore 1909 was it worth it and uh i i found that uh, phrase in in two wonderful places one of which is a very wild water source it's always been now i have no idea who the hell john moore was i assume he was some kind of miner out there looking for nickels worth of copper but nonetheless uh he was out there, and that was a rough place. Mm. In the summertime, the tents are out there. It goes to 130 degrees. The water holes sometimes dry up, and, uh, you know, there it is. Uh, I, w- I wanted to just follow up. Uh, some of you said the you're you're seeing more more migrants. Uh, is is that because the wall the wall is funneling them into that part of the desert? No, the bloody wall is just an abomination. It's, you know, uh, the world is set up now for endless migrations. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happened, you know, with uh, climate change hitting, uh, you know, hitting uh, Africa, baking, you know, eventually baking you know, the grain belts of our own North America and, and Asia. And uh, what you're going to see is refugees. You're going to see wars. And, uh, you know, people have no place to go, so they've generally got to go north. Well, you know, there's no arable land left on Earth that human beings aren't exploiting, and that means conflict, and that means wars, and that means refugees. So this thing on our own border is just a microcosm of the Earth right now. You know, as habitat, you know, I, I, I hang out a lot with grizzly bears. And, you know, that's exactly what I'm trying to do is, is help the Yellowstone grizzly bear. And what's happened in the Yellowstone uh, grizzly bear ecosystem is that climate change is changing the quality of the habitat, you know, the so-called carrying capacity. And animals in Yellowstone uh, are are looking for they're, they're, they're looking for new habitats, better habitats, new foods, whatever. And so they've got to wander. And these refugee bag uh, bears, who we've just sort of arbitrarily tagged, we call them explorer bears because they're the ones. You know, Yellowstone is a. Uh, I'm going back to my grizzly bears again, but you know, Yellowstone. Uh, grizzly bear population is an island. It's isolated genetically and physically from, say, glaciers uh, ecosystem, the, you know, the big population up around uh, northern Montana. And these are the bears that are going to con- complete that absolutely necessary connectivity are these bears that are wandering. And right now, 
our state game and fish departments are removing these bears way too rapidly. And, uh, you know, that, that's something, uh, you know, that's, that's the center of my uh, activist uh, life right now is uh, trying to do something about that. I wonder if you could, uh, you have a chapter in the book. By the way, the, the if you just join us, Doug Peacock is with us. Uh, and the, the title of the book is Was It Worth It? The subtitle is A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home. Uh, you have a chapter called The Hey Duke Ancestry. Um, you have a, a great uh, drawing here with uh, Seldom Seen Smith and George Washington Hey Duke cutting a fence, by the way. Um, so in this, you talk about how, you know, that. Nobody but Ed Abbey could uh, tell you exactly how George Washington Hayduke came about. But uh, what if you tell us a little bit about the the Doug Peacock that uh, Ed Abbey in, encountered? Kind of those those first years up in the Yellowstone, encountering the the Grizzlies after you came back from Vietnam. Yeah, let me just uh, read the first three or four paragraphs of the book, and it kind yeah. of lays that out. Great. It's this, the opening chapter, just called Winter Cone. It's kind of a you know, it's a sort of a prelude. I logged my life by winter counts in the fashion of the Plains tribes who painted significant events on the inner side of a bison hide. This might be a battle, a treaty, an encounter with a dangerous creature, finding a spirit animal, or possibly a winter so cold the cottonwood trees split apart. Though the indigenous peoples tended to mark each year, not every year of my life was worthy of a winter count. Some counts could come bundled in decades with only the rivulets of spring runoff and the emergence of bears to mark the in-between times. So it was with me. I started a new count in 1968. There was my life before the war that prepared me for a life in the wilderness. A good life, full of swamps, rivers, woods, deserts, and mountains. From 1965 to 1968, I worked as a special forces medic who attended too much collateral damage. That cowardly phrase they apply to the pile of small, dismembered bodies after a botched air attack. After March 1968, I applied the anger I had felt to the defense of wild things, dimly realizing that the fate of the earth and her inhabitants depended on un compromising protection of the wilderness homeland and wild creatures. My war experiences, good and bad, prepared me for the fight. It was a gift. I learned to love grizzly bears. I also fell in love with the lower Sonoran Desert. A romance started in the early 60s, but broken by the separation of the war. Space and endless clean vistas, unbroken by the forest I so cherished up north. By late 1968, I had two opposing mistresses, grizzly bears in the northern Rockies and the desert southwest. When the bears hibernated, I hightailed it south. I'm just going to read uh, just a, a, one more paragraph and, and, and get, get to Hayduke, okay? Okay. Yeah, it's winter now, and I sit in a sun-filled desert wash. A few ground flowers are blooming, and the stalks of brittlebush show a rare yes yellow blossom. I sit several days' walk from where Ed Abbey is buried. This lower Sonoran desert country is still considered a wilderness, and I miss my buddies with whom I shared 
many of these adventures. Ed Abbey, Peter Matheson, Doug Tompkins, and Jim Harrison. I have always dreaded the loss of wild country so much that I cared not to live without it. Now another threat, the beast of our time, the warming planet, has etched into the sky, and every creature on Earth bigger than a field bull is at risk of decimation or extinction. And there it is. Back to Abby's ancient quandary. What to do? Duty textured in the joy of living fully and loving the earth. Except for a pledge to fight to the literal end, I never quite solved this problem. Everybody's mortality is in the lens now, and it's not necessarily a telephoto shop. Okay, did you want to... uh, uh, did you did you want to um, let's see what chapter is that? Oh, I, I know. Oh, the the just the next chapter, the Hayduke hey, ancestry. Yeah. Okay, hang on just a minute here. <clears throat> this is called the Hayduke ancestry. Even today, the flash of a Hayduke lived bumper sticker is not an uncommon sight on the byways and in the parking lots of America. For me, this signals a public acknowledgement that the writings and teachings of Ed Abbey still matter. We care about the wild one and believe that maybe the wilderness is the only thing worth saving. How did the fictional character of George Washington Hayduke come into imagining? Only Edward Abbey could know precisely how those particular threads came together. But the part of George that Ed borrowed from the real-life Peacock had distinct origins that were rooted in wilderness and both the trauma and value of recovering from war. The most indispensable wilderness... Get this phone out here. Um, The most indispensable wilderness experience in my life arrived quite accidentally in Yellowstone National Park during the decade after I returned from Vietnam. Accidental because I stumbled into the lodgepole pine forest at the peak of a hallucinatory malaria paroxysm. I had lots of them, so this was not uncommon. And this one started in the high eastern wind river range where I was climbing, and I had to get the hell out of it. So I, I, uh, I stumbled into Yellowstone with a fever of 105 or so, and I was out of my head. And uh, anyway, so I knew it was coming. Mm. And I dreamed of grizzlies in Yellowstone that turned out to be real bears. That experience can't be replicated today because of human overcrowding. It occurred long enough ago that the National Park Service didn't especially think a wacko hiding out in their backcountry was worth looking for. That was a combat vet Ed Abbey met in 1968 and upon whom he later based the fictional character of George Washington Haytu. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I, I was a little crazy back then, so I'll, I'll just read on just another paragraph to show how wacko I was in those days. With its wildlife, wilderness, and thermal areas of refuge from deep snows, I considered Yellowstone's backcountry a paradise, and wanted to indulge in pockets of it 
without interference from the outside world. This was still possible in the Yellowstone long before talk of bringing in fast food and the Internet to National Park Service campgrounds. That was Trump. It also meant I had to hide out, like an escaped POW might have, have attempted in Vietnam. <clears throat> At that time, there was no sane boundary for me between living in the edge of the Yellowstone National Park and the fantasy of looting captured by the Viet Cong hunting for me in the jungles of Vietnam. I had one close call in Southeast Asia and had yet to shake the nightmare loose. I wanted to chisel that episode out of my life like a malignant lesion. But back then I couldn't. I was terrified of someone finding me camped in the woods of Yellowstone. I traveled with this irrational fear buried in my backpack while tramping across the meadows and through the lodgepole pine forest. The shrinks would try to provide chunky terminology for this pathology a decade and a half later with the term PTSD and such. In the meantime, I prowled around Yellowstone like a madman. Well, anyway, yeah. it, it turned out to be, you know, turned out to be the right thing to do if you, you know, by uh, by the time uh, this chapter takes place, I'd started filming grizzly bears full time. So it was a good, you know, being a little crazy didn't hurt a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what... Um... What, what did you find out there that, that helped you so much? I, I, solitude, I think, could probably help. The, the grizzlies themselves, what was it about the grizzlies that uh, attracted it, you, know, you so much and helped all, you? All, yeah, it was all of those wilderness elements tied up with one another. You know, I would go out and, you know, my favorite times uh, for Yellowstone, I would go there in early spring, in April, and... Uh, you know, back when we had snows in the wintertime, uh, there's sometimes three or even four feet of snow lingering under the high lodgepole forest. And, you know, it was too late for skis because by noon, the crust on top of the snow would soften and you break through. Even And I traveled on snowshoes. But even on snowshoes, I'd break through and wallow. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's too late for skis, too early for boots. And uh, there's nobody back there because it was just miserable traveling. You know, you had to really know what you were doing. And, you know, since I was looking for grizzlies, that means I'd travel in the morning, you know, when the, when the crust was still frozen. I, you know, I could I could make 10 or more miles, you know, and, and either go to places where I knew grizzly bears might be or to – pick up a set of tracks of a wild grizzly and track uh, uh, him or her, you know, and try to try to catch up with them, which sometimes would take several days. But anyway, it, uh, uh, you know, there was nobody in the back country. It was completely, you know, it was wild and quiet. And, uh, you know, and you had wild bison around all the time. When I started, uh, uh, tracking grizzly bears and making, you know, a, a, a film record of what 
I believe that the time were going to be the last Grizzlies south of Canada. They were, Yellowstone didn't look good in, say, the early 70s. You know, uh, uh, we were down to nobody knows the number, not me, and certainly no biologists extrapolating. But, you know, they talk about 100 to 150 Grizzlies left in Yellowstone. Well, you know, that's the end of the population pretty much. So I was just out there stumbling around, kind of like an ethnographer might have, you know, in 1834 going up the Missouri River past the Mandan villages, you know, trying to get a last glimpse, you know, of a disappearing life. And the other thing, of course, is grizzly bears themselves. You know, the wild, you know, wild country, wilderness, doesn't have to have grizzly bears. It has whatever lives there. But to have all the animals that originally lived there is magnificent. It's even more so to me to have an animal like a grizzly bear where you've really got to pay attention. You know, the most important, you know, the the most enhancing, character-changing experience, uh, for me at least, was you know, somehow find a way to get outside yourself. And, you know, the the easiest exit from culture I know of is wilderness. And you get out there three or four days, and I was out sometimes 10 days to two weeks. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. You know, you hear better, you smell better. And best of all, there's a creature out there that if it chooses to, and it almost never does, you know, it can kill and eat you. And, uh, you know, you don't diddy-bop down a trail thinking about your girlfriend or your portfolio. You uh, you know, there's, there's something else out there. And you're part of the food pyramid. You know, you're not at the top of it anymore. And that's a really healthy relationship. That is, you know, that that is instilled humility in my, you know, in my experience. And, you know, humility is really the basic emotion behind reason. It opens you up. And, uh, boy, did I need that when I came back from the war. Uh, I want to uh, I want to go to break here uh, uh, in a couple minutes, but I want to talk about uh, right here uh, bison. In this chapter, you talk about grizzlies, but you also you say, I consider bison America's quintessential animal. You talk about how, you know, the bison were almost completely exterminated. Um, I wonder if you talk about that a little bit, about the bison, because you, you encountered bison out here in Yellowstone, and uh, bison in Yellowstone were almost exterminated. Yeah. Um, you know, the last bison on, uh, wild bison that we're sure of on Earth were 23 wild bison, uh, in 1902 that they couldn't catch in Yellowstone National Park up Pelican Valley. And that's where this chapter takes place. And I actually I stumbled across the hunting camp of Yellowstone's most famous poacher, a man named Howell, who was busted in uh, 1894. Uh, it, and I found his camp, in short. But here, here I'll just, you know, we had 60 million bison when Lewis and Clark wandered upriver. You know, we don't know how many we had, but we had lots, you know, millions. 
There was estimated to be a single herd of 10 million bison crossing the Iowa River. And, uh, and then, you know, by, uh, by 1882, we were down to a few hundred bison from 60 million. And that is staggering. So, you know, I, I, uh, I had to say something in this chapter about bison. And I think I'll just uh, read it here. I mean, Because, you know, I might, I might uh, only see a grizzly once a week, but the bison were there every day, and I really appreciated that. Anyway, let me read this from uh, the Hidouk Ancestry. I need to say something about bison. I considered the bison America's quintessential animal, as important to our hearts and souls as grizzlies or any other creature. My own partisan views are carved from decades of watching bison. All the time I lived in the backcountry of Yellowstone filming grizzly bears, bison were my daily companions. Back in the 1970s, grizzlies were less common. Sometimes you didn't see a bear for a week or more. But the bison were there every day, prancing, rolling, bellowing, dominating the landscape. Watching them became an ecology of thinking. And these bison were the great-grandchildren many times great-great-grandchildren, of those 23 wild bison they couldn't catch in Yellowstone's Pelican Valley in 1902. Their kinship gave me immense pleasure, and we almost slaughtered them into extinction right here in Astringent Creek. You know, and I go on to state that these great herds of totemic animals have thundered through human consciousness since the beginning of our kind. Today I've been fortunate to have witnessed the tip of that ancient iceberg of animal craving when I saw the wildebeest and the Kalahari and the caribou of the Arctic porcupine herd. But the most astounding herd to roam the face of the earth was the American bison of the Great Plains. The numbers we hear stagger the imagination. The reason given for their demise are the usual ones. Manifest destiny, European dominion, the need for agricultural land are a way to deal with the final solution to the Indian problem by eliminating their commissary, the bison. Anyway, it, uh, nobody killed like that. Um, nobody killed like that, like uh, we American European immigrants did in the uh, second half of the 1800s. Yeah, just incredible. Um, well, let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have uh, much more with Doug Peacock. The new book is "Was It Worth It: uh, Wilderness Warriors Along a Trail Home." Uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is Doug Peacock. Uh, he, his latest book is Was It Worth It? A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home. Doug Peacock, who was granted a, an Arts and Letters Award in Literature from the Academy of Arts and Letters this year. Uh, he uh, was a Green Bay Beret medic and real-life model for Edward Abbey's George Washington Hayduke in the Monkey Wrench Gang, author of uh, several books. And uh, this latest one is out from uh, Patagonia. Um, so, Doug Peacock, I want to have you uh, re- recount or, or read, if you'd uh, prefer, uh, just a pulse-pounding encounter with a snake 
Uh, this this was uh, huh? <laughs> had my, had my blood running here. Uh, this is in the chapter Headwaters, so uh, page one fifty three. If you'd like to read it, uh, starting the the bottom chapter of one fifty three, and then maybe over the over the page for, okay. for about three three paragraphs. Okay, uh, I got to find it here. It, you say it's on page one fifty three. One fifty three, yeah, uh, starting with the the last paragraph. And oh, okay. That, and here, then, then over the page. You know, I'm floating yeah. down. Uh, actually, I'm. Uh, I just call this headwaters because uh, after the uh, after the Earth first uh, bust uh, by the FBI, and uh, the year that Ed died, it would be uh, let's see, 1989. Um, anyway. I had a drift boat, and I had a friend, Jim Crumley, dump me on on the headwaters of the uh, towards the headwaters of the Big Hole River, and I floated all the way down the Big Hole into the Jefferson, and uh, you know, and eventually the Jefferson goes down and, and joins at uh, Three Forks, joins the Missouri and the Galton to form the Missouri River, and uh, it's a long ways. You know, it took me. 16 days of going down there and I just uh I just entered the flow of the river you know I didn't uh, I lived off uh crayfish and occasional trout and and uh, you know uh I was floating down the river so I saw signs of civilization but I didn't see any people once I left the big hole river for the next 150 miles river you know I saw like four fishermen it was just uh you know, people just didn't uh, use that. And uh, so, you know, every night I have to uh, pick up preferably a piece of public land uh, to camp, you know, and I can't, I just camp in a cottonwood thicket and, and, and hide out and get on the river early in the morning. It's kind of outlaw camping, the whole bloody thing. Uh, so I'm going down the river, you know, alone in a drift boat, you know, trying to row and, and, uh, Anyway, it's just awkward. The river's dropping, and I have to scrape the boat and get out and pull it over uh, shallows. I go down channels of, you know, the Big Hole River uh, where where it braids, and uh, sometimes there's, you know, a a three-foot cottonwood tree across the river that I can't chop through. You know, I don't have enough time to chop through. So I have to turn around, strip off my clothes, uh get a rope and haul the boat back up river sometimes like you know almost a quarter of a mile and, and you know it's it's very primitive living anyway uh i'm getting ready uh you know it's getting late in the day and i'm floating down the river and and I, i'm i'm uh, i'm just going to read this thing and you know i'm 10 days out on the river by that time by this time i had quit fishing altogether it didn't seem fair, and I'd eaten all the trout and crayfish bula bays I could stomach. Ahead was a point of rocks, an osprey nested on a utility pole in the distance. Across from the outcrop lay a little thicket with a quarter section of state land. I stood up in the boat and snared a branch on the faster-moving, deeper outer bank. I looped the, bu- the bow line over a big root and pulled myself up the four-foot vertical embankment. My nose eased over the bank 
for a look. Turn the page here. My heart stopped. A foot from my forehead, something moved. I was face to face with a huge hissing snake. I figured I figured to take the prairie rattlesnake bite right on the nose. It would leave one ugly scar. My nose might have to be amputated. The big snake's tail vibrated rapidly in the leaves. But the sound was not a rattle because this snake didn't have rattles. It was a bull snake. I started to breathe again. I lay on the bank and looked up through the summer green hawthorn and cottonwood to the blue sky beyond. The sweet babble of river laughed at me. The close encounter with the non-venomous snake brought me a heightened awareness of the beauty all around me. It was good to have dangerous wild neighbors. Living among grizzly bears had made a similar impression on me. Sharing the habitat with animals that sometimes kill or eat humans was the most direct route I knew towards a non-anthropocentric cosmology. How the hell could anyone believe humans were the center of the world when facing venomous reptiles, grizzlies, tigers, lions, jaguars, or polar bears on equal terms and neutral turf? It would also be useful to retain one's humility during more or less normal daily situations, I thought. Conditions only slightly less banal than run-ins with runner-cops in shopping malls or a domestic spat. Something to keep in mind the next time run into a snake. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there, there it is. Yeah, well, luckily it was a bull snake, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you talk about that you same thing with the grizzly bears uh, a, a healthy sense of humility helps um oh, you've also talked about how in your view we uh humans get into trouble when we when we feel like we're separate right apart uh yeah uh exactly you know you know, living with those kinds of animals, and and especially in the wilderness, you know, there's no way, uh, you know, there's no way you could imagine humans as the center of the universe. Um, I'm just gonna. Can you still hear me? Okay. Uh, yes, I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wonder if you could, um, and uh, if you just join us, we have Doug Peacock with us. Uh, the book is Was It Worth It? out from Patagonia Press. Um, I wonder if you could t- talk a little bit about, the, just the next chapter over, you talk about uh, going out um, to with, with polar bears north of the Arctic Circle with Doug Tompkins uh, and, and a group of, you know, another a group of uh, people uh, in in his group, your group, right? Uh, by the way, I talked yeah, with... Yeah, Rick Ridgway was along, and Bart Lewis, really yeah. good friends. By the way, I talked with Rick Ridgway. He was on yesterday, so... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we mentioned mentioned, <laughs> mentioned you. So uh, this group of people, which included uh, Tom Brokaw, I never knew that the newsman was part of this group as well. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's, he's a big part. He, uh, he met Ridgway when Ridgway climbed K2... And he was, you know, Rick, Rick was on the Today Show, which Brokaw, you know, anchored. Yeah. And uh, after the interview was done, um, Brokaw confessed to Rick that, you know, he he always wanted to climb. And Ridgway just said, you really should try it. 
And so the next summer, they brought Brokaw out to uh, Jackson Hole to climb the Grand Teton, and later, much more challenging, I think, was Mount Moran. And, uh, you know, they hiked with Doug Tompkins, Yvonne Chenard, and, and, and uh, Ridgeway were the, you know, the, the core of the mountaineering team. And, you know, those are the same guys that uh, I, I went over to look for Siberian Tigers with. You know, Brokaw and Yvonne. I go a number of places with Yvonne. We've been to a desert island, and you know, and I've fished with all these guys. So that, that's a real privilege. You know, they, they travel so well. They, uh, you know, they're not full of themselves, and uh, they really care about the world. And it's just a pleasure to pleasure to have traveled with them. Mm. So this particular chapter, you, you're recruited by Doug Tompkins because uh, I guess you're the bear guy, right? You know grizzlies, but you don't know yeah, much about we polar actually, bears, right? Excuse me. Um, yeah, you know, uh, there, uh, it was sort of a beluga whale expedition. And, uh, you know, the beluga whale people were understandably nervous about polar bears. And... Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm the bear guy, you know, the fact that I didn't know crap about polar bears, uh, you know, I, uh, didn't really matter. You know, I'd seen a couple of polar bears on previous Arctic expeditions, but, you know, I didn't feel I knew much about them the way I really did know about brown bears, but it, uh, it worked out just fine. So you, uh, Usual advice you write is is to carry a big bore firearm. You do, you don't do that in this. You, you, you're carrying a spear. <laughs> That's... Yeah, it's on, it's on the it's on the cover. Uh, <laughs> let, let me see if I can find anything. Uh, uh, yeah, I decided. You know, it's actually law. You're supposed to carry a big bore firearm, and uh, I don't know. I uh, thought it. Uh, Okay, I, uh, I'm looking at my own book, trying to find uh, something. But anyway, I chose a spear because um, you know it's just, it's a polar bear's place, and I didn't. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's an ancient argument, and I just don't buy into it. You know, mm-hmm. um, that, you yeah. know the Monday, you know the the gun argument. You know, the mundane side of that gun argument is that a firearm will get you into more trouble and get you out. And uh, most of the official bear literature speaks of the necessity of guns for shooting, charging grizzly bears. Grizzly bears that charge are mostly mothers with cubs that will stop short if you inoffensively stand your ground. So when do you begin shooting? And this is what I resolved for myself to carry the spear up there instead of a firearm. My judgment to carry a spear resolves all these questions. I can consider myself responsible for all my companions should encounter with a white bear grow critical. This is what I agreed to do. Walk point. The bedrock assumption never discussed that keeps my carrying a spear from becoming something other than a campy joke is that you need to be willing to die. (laughs) Anyway, I didn't have to. But you, you know, you would have lost ninety nine out of a hundred times. But it's, it's, otherwise, the theory was sound. And uh, I'll just, uh, 
Here, finally, at at the end of this chapter, we encounter all kinds of polar bears, and there's, you know, uh, we we're camping up on an island in tundra, and it's it's uh, it's uh, anyway, and you know the sun just goes around in circles, so you never know what time it is. Quarter mile to the south of my tent, three white flecks are moving directly towards me across the contrasting canvas a brown and green tundra. This is in the Canadian high Arctic, by the way. Bear, bear. Through my binoculars, I can see a mother polar bear and her two cubs. They will pass inland to my tent, 100 feet away near the foot of the bluff. I pick up my spear and head to a better vantage point, a moss-covered hummock of ancient bowhead whale boats, the remains of a thousand-year-old Thule culture side house, sod house. So, you know, this is archaeology, about, you know, the same age as the Anasazi ruins in the southwest, except they're bowhead whale houses, sod houses. The white bear family ambles into a little ravine 100 yards away, still heading my way. They move fluidly with unimaginable grace and beauty. Holding the eight-foot-long spear in my right hand, I grab a handful of lichen and moss with my left. Like Antios, the giant of Greek mythology, invincible while touching the earth, I have to be on the ground, holding tight to the world, always sharing the land with wild animals that hold down the same living skin of the earth with the fierce weight of their paws. You know, I wrote, uh, I, I, this has got a lot of stories in it. They're good stories. They're jaguars and Siberian tigers and, you know, all kinds of things, but uh, at the end, I, I put them in here to uh, to, to uh, you know to write the last chapter about climate change, and that's really you know the publisher of this book, and they produced Patagonia as a publisher now produced uh, just a beautiful book. So I, I figured the least I could do is write well for it. And, you know, we were lucky to get that uh, that uh, literature award, you know. Also, it's going to buy me a lot of beer. Yeah, so. very, very good. Well, and congratulations <laughs> on that, by the way. It is a beautiful book, a beautiful photograph, so well, you know, beautifully written as well. Some great stories in here. Um, let's take another break. We'll come back with final segment with Doug Peacock. Uh, Doug Peacock, just oh. alert you, I... Uh, I can't go through the hour without having you tell or read the story of your encounter with the jaguar in uh, in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, this is so page fifty nine um, is it kind of begins this this part of the story and there's a there's a photograph of a of a jaguar in the oh, yeah. Sierra del uh-huh. Nido there. So uh, page fifty nine, and uh, then have you talk a bit about climate change as well uh, before we end. Uh, so let's take a quick break. We'll come back and have our last uh, okay. seven or eight minutes with Doug Peacock. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Doug Peacock. The book is Was It Worth It? A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home out from uh, Patagonia Press. Um, so, Doug Peacock, uh, want to have you uh, tell or read this this story? This this is just <laughs> just incredible. Many incredible stories in in the book. Um, so, page fifty nine, uh, you're starting in the middle of the page and then yeah, over over sure. the page. Yeah, you know, uh, Antelope Island, 
my best friend and birder extraordinaire, Terry Tempest Williams, took me out there one time, and there were, you know, thousands of avo sets with 10% black neck stilts. And that was, you know, you know I, I, I get out there from time to time, uh, often with Terry. Anyway, I'm going to read this Jaguar. Uh, you know, I'm going down into the Sierra Madres to look for the last grizzly. And indeed, we do find sign of the last grizzly, you know, up on a 9,000-foot ridge of digs. And you can tell a grizzly from a black bear almost anything else by the nature of the digs. You know, black bear might tear up an anthill, but they don't dig much. Grizzlies dig huge holes for all kinds of things, and they last for years. So anyway, uh, we found, you know, uh, on the way into this wild range, it was all privately owned. That's why the grizzly bears and the wolves, we ran into wolves in there. And uh, we crossed the track of, uh, you know, this giant cat. Now, I, I, I know a bit about mountain lions. haven't run across them so many times. And, uh, but this was a giant track, you know, it was the size of like a, I don't know, maybe you know, 150, 200 pound mountain lion. Well, I've never seen a kitty that big. And, uh, the track wasn't quite right. So we had a suspicion. I was with a, a friend named Scarp, or at least I call him Scarp. And, uh, uh, you know, he's the one that suggested it might be a bloody jaguar. And finally, we get to smell the, the track and stuff like that. And, you know, we're really convinced it is the jaguar. And, uh, you know, it is, we're following its track. It's following us, but it doesn't get close to us until the very end. And so, um, you know, we make camp down in a, down in a oak bottom and, uh, you know, we're just preparing uh, a fire and cooking dinner, uh, which is a tin of jalapenos and a can of black beans. We lean on our bedrolls by the glowing fire, and this is down in the Sierra Madres of Chihuahua, listening to the night sounds of owls and goat suckers. A coyote yaps from somewhere down the canyon. Then a coughing sound close to camp breaks the silence. The low vocalization it's strange to my ears. It puzzles and alarms us, and for a very real minute, scares the shit out of me. It seems to be coming from a big cat, and that cat is very close. Holy shit, murmurs Scarp. We get up. I throw logs on the fire. The coughing is coming from just beyond the firelight. We are too alarmed and cautious to investigate, so we cling to the blaze. I can hear the brush moving. It's the jaguar for certain. There is one last cough in the darkness, only a stone's throw from our fire, then silence. Shaken, but also high in this close encounter with a huge predator, we sort out our responses. The jaguar is probably just curious, so neither of us is eager to go out and ask the giant cat in the dark what he is thinking. What was this big feline doing, checking out our fire? Our camp is certainly in his territory, and probably on his preferred patrol route. We wonder what he was hunting. What was he seeking so close to our camp? Anyway, uh, <laughs> and um, listen, um, I, I don't. I don't think we have much time left. Yeah, just a couple of minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Let me let me read uh, at the very end. Uh, at the very end of the book, the last page or two. Um, and this is called The Perfect Bait for an Outbreak. And, of course, the bait is homo sapiens. You know, we've made the world perfect for us as, you know, carrier in a series of great pandemics, you know. And the current one is not to last. Okay. When it is indeed our time to walk off stage with the mammoths, what might be the measure of our character at the end of our tour? You know, I, I have to explore this territory, so I do it in the last chapter. After peering into the abyss, how do we behave? There is great joy in doing the toil of the world, fighting for wild causes, saving pieces of the magnificent world. There's plenty of work. Do your job with decency and an open heart. Love your brothers and sisters in all actions. In all relationships, speak the truth. This is the this is only one paragraph, three hundred pages where I preach. Okay, I won't be long. Uh, speak the truth. Extend your innate empathy to distant tribes and strange animals. Arm yourself with friendship and love the earth. Remember your elders, as Walt said. Resist much, obey little. Or as Ed said, a patriot must always be ready to defend his country, against his government. Hold nothing back. Join the tribes in their dignified defense of Native rights. An indigenous viewpoint should replace all notions of Western wildlife management. Respect this militant resistance and embrace the necessity of civil disobedience. What, what's right isn't always legal and vice versa. Consider getting arrested. Who and what is at risk? If past extinctions provide guidelines, then it's all life larger than a small meadow mouse. Now I can unpleasantly anticipate being among those minority humans left on Earth to die from old age. I'd be happier if everybody could. It's a scourge of my geezerhood. I'm unconcerned with my own death and fatally engaged in the lives of all my survivors. There is a bottomless, contradictory sadness and a fleeting glimpse of justice. Nature bats last, avenging the scorched earth. Payback to Homo sapiens. Bundled up in loss of beauty and suffering in the lives of the people you love most. But then I watched the glacier grizzly walking slowly through a herd of elk that paid him nor mine nor got out of his way. And I go on with about a page of those experiences. Finally watching the, about a dozen Four bear families, including mother, four mother grizzlies and their cubs, and even yearlings, dancing around the water hole. And so I, I describe that, and I just say, science does, doesn't admit the spectrum of behavior. The bears were dancing. It was worth it. The end. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. That's that's a beautiful place to to end the the conversation. Thank you, Doug Peacock. Uh, the book is Was It Worth It? It's out and available now. Uh, DougPeacock.net is is the website. Doug Peacock, uh, pleasure always. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was a it was a you know it. it uh, I, I really enjoy talking to someone who lives in northern Utah, where there used to more be more grizzlies and the wasps 
than anybody can ever imagine today. It was <laughs> Wonderful. perfect for their country. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you, Doug Peacock. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.